Um, I'm Lauren Kirby, one of the organizers and the education specialist here at the Religious Literacy Project. I'm going to do a very, very, very brief framing introduction for us and then introduce these fabulous panelists to my left. Um, so we've been talking all day about the power of media to influence how people think about religion. And in this panel, we're going to ask whether media companies have an obligation to use this power for good and what good means and who gets to define it and all of the questions that spin off of that idea. CSR, or Corporate Social Responsibility, posits, of course, that companies can do well by doing good. And our panelists here have a wealth of experience in shifting public perceptions on issues like same-sex marriage, climate change, girl equity, and more through intentional media campaigns. Our first panelist is Mario Caterfresh, who is really one of the masterminds behind this whole event. Uh, and since he taught me everything I know about CSR, he's going to be introducing all of you to the topic through an overview of how it's worked and his experience with it. Uh, then Ross, Carita, and Bruno uh, are going to help us better understand how a CSR campaign takes place through a hugely collaborative effort uh, among people both inside the media and working in different organizations outside. So they'll walk us through sort of step by step of what that looks like. Uh, so without further ado, please welcome Mario. Good evening, everyone, and thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, I will start with a video that will summarize what a CSR campaign looks like in the entertainment, media and entertainment industry. And then I will try to decode it backwards, and then it will be coded again forward by my colleagues in the panel. That way you will get a full understanding of how, why a CSR campaign uh, lives in an entertainment world. So we'll start with this video. It's about being a change maker. The millennial generation values the idea of being a hero. Someone who takes a stand, does the unexpected, and comes out on top. 86% of millennials survey through Viacom's global study, The Next Normal, are looking for meaning through doing something meaningful with my life. 67% agree that helping make the world a better place and doing things for others is very important to me. 66% of millennials find new ways to contribute, helping those who are less fortunate in your community. This is the generation of Agents of Change. MTV Agents of Change launched in 2006 as a 360 degree campaign that empowers millennials to do good. This year, Agents of Change reached 75 million TV households in 25 plus countries. Through 15 campaigns, 74 hours of content valued at over $30 million for our partners' brands. In addition to 9 million Facebook likes and 3 million Twitter followers. But the exposure doesn't end there. MTV extends their message to the decision makers, providing access to over 10 industry conferences around the world. Since 2006, Agents of Change has empowered over 500 millennials through seed funding and valuable tools to impact their communities. Agents of Change has also established a strong network of international celebrities with over 40 celebs awarded with the MTV Chuuku Award, recognizing influences of positive change across multiple issues that affect youth. And how do we stay on the pulse of their issues? It starts with the research. Agents of Change has surveyed over 10,000 millennials to identify the issues that inspire the campaign and Latin America communities. Join the movement now. Become an agent of change. So for 15 years, uh, I worked at Viacom, and then I left and I'm here. <laughs> uh, 
It was one of the most important and wonderful experiences. Uh, we dealt with every issue that you can possibly imagine, as Lauren mentioned, the environment, anti-bullying, anti-violence, gender equity, um, animal rights. I'm just trying to think of all the things that we did in 15 years. Uh, but religion was not really one of the CSR uh, elements or topics that we dealt with. So um, in order to start a pro-social campaign, as we called it uh, internally, we first had to be trained uh, on the subject matter and get sensitivity in the training. And uh, Ross is going to tell you a little bit about how the training works after me. And then we have to have somebody who has the need to communicate about the issue and has a brief that comes and tells us what the issue is and educates us on what we need to say. And Carida is going to tell you about how the brief happens. And then we go to the creative team internally, in this case, uh, MTV or Nickelodeon or Comedy Central, whichever the brand was that we were dealing with. And they would come up with all of the different solutions, which I'll walk you through it, uh, all the different creative solutions. And then we have to, of course, have some celebrities uh, so that they can add more pizzazz to the campaign. And Bruno from CAA is going to tell you about how celebrities get involved and why they get involved. This is a very basic example of what the brief looks like. Um, we ask uh, any nonprofit partner that has the need to have a communications uh, to fill out a form that looks very much like this. So we ask them, what is your campaign name? Um, what is it that you're trying to achieve? What is it trying to say? To whom are you trying to say this? What is the objective of this campaign? And then we ask them to educate us. Uh, as much as they can, all of the research that they've done, so that we can go to our company and uh, correlate it to the research that we've done on the different demographics of the different brands or channels that the company has, so that we know which will be the best outlet, whether it's going to be Nickelodeon, if it's for children, or MTV, if it's for young adults and youth, or it's Comedy Central, or VH1, or Paramount, for adults or families. So that way you start determining where this uh, message is going to be going to. So then they give us um, the markets they want to reach, the languages they want to reach, the countries they want to reach, so that we know exactly what their goal is so that when the media company produces this campaign, it's really on target uh, on the needs of the nonprofit. So after we go through all this brief, um, we show them the different platforms that the media company has. And I'm just going to quickly explain to you in 10 seconds what each one of these is. So a PSA, it's a public service announcement. Usually it's 15 to 30 seconds. It usually features one individual uh, as the leading character of the public service announcement. And it usually is telling you something very direct, very uh, think this or do this. Uh, long form integration. It's something much more complicated, and that's what Sheila was talking about um, when she presented uh, East, Los, uh, East Los High. Um, we worked with the same team, and we had a 91-hour episode uh, soap opera that we produced for MTV, and that's really long-form integration. You take all of the knowledge that, let's say, Carida from UNICEF gives us, and then we create characters, we create short stories, long stories, the arc stories, 
So everything that we want to say, it's told throughout the development of this uh, episodic series. Um, and the story keeps on developing and leaving everybody in a cliffhanger, but uh, the messages are always there, and they're a very organic way to bring messages forward, and it's a way for the audience also to connect to one of those issues, because they will connect to one of those characters as well. Um, digital, social media, you, everyone knows about that one. Facebook, uh, Instagram, you know the power that that has. That's when you want to engage the audience to say something, to do something, to support something, to vote for something, uh, to take a quiz, to take a poll. We use those um, uh, social media connections. And then the news reports and documentaries, um, sorry that uh, we put them on the same uh, little squares because in the company is the same, the people who make the news also make the documentaries and that's probably why it's in the little box. But for this particular symposium, they should be in two separate boxes. Um, so documentaries usually are one, uh, one episode. It could be one hour, two hours, two and a half hours. Um, every now and then we do, we do what we call docu-series which may be like a three half hour, three one hour um, episodes. Then we have the contests and the events, which are probably in the um, entertainment world, it's one of the most successful uh, tactics to implement, is when you say, hey, go to this website, learn about this, take the quiz, and after that you will enter the raffle to go, you plus one to the MTV Video Music Awards with all expenses paid. Trust me, it works. <laughs> um, then you have the profile spots. It's when you decide to profile somebody's story, more like a testimonial, but it's still within the 15 to 30 second range. And then you have the call to action spots, which would be um, specifically to asking you to take action in doing something. Um, one of the examples that I can think of is when this organization called Techo, which means roof in Latin America, was launching they needed money, but MTV didn't really have the cash to give it to them. But we partner up with Coca-Cola, and we asked the audience at MTV, go and click the Facebook page, uh, and for every like that, or you know, follower that they got, Coca-Cola was gonna give them a dollar. So we all together you know, collectively raised a lot of money for the nonprofit. So call to actions are very, very important as well. And then, so we educate them on the things that we can do. Um, then we go to the, this business model that I'm very proud to tell you that I created it. <laughs> in 15 years of working at Viacom, it, didn't, it, didn't, it wasn't created in one year. Um, it took quite a while because at the beginning when we started with this program, uh, which was 16 years ago, people were looking at us like, why do you wanna give airtime for free? What is, this, what is in it for us? We are a for-profit company, how do we get something out of it, because at the end of the day, we do have shareholders that demand that the company makes money, right? But we had to convince them that also the new shareholders were gonna be demanding that the company does social good or social impact. So the business model works like this. The nonprofit comes and gives us the brief, the one that I explained to you. Uh, then we look at all of the different I'll stay here. Um, so then we look at all the different um, tactics that we can use. We go back to the creative team, and very importantly, we go back to the research team of the company, in this case it would be Viacom, to understand where this message will be the most impactful. How are we gonna reach the most audience? How are we gonna engage the most audience? Which audience 
in the research that Viacom has done has brought this up. That is something they want to learn, something they want to take on. So it's not just something random that we go, oh, great, you know, um, we need to save the blue whales. Let's just put it in the kids' channel. It doesn't quite work like that. It's a really well thought out process. Um, then the creative team uh, develops the best way that this message can be inserted into the world of that channel. It could be a standalone campaign, all from scratch, all brand new content, or it can be something integrated into something that is already being produced. So once the creative team uh, decides what's best, we present it back to the nonprofit and we explain to them why this is the best way to do it. Um, and then also Viacom at this point has already committed uh, the pro bono media time that they're gonna give it. So if it's, let's say, a combination of a call to action spot, a profile spot, and a documentary, um, they already tell us how many rotations each one of those things, each one of those contents are going to receive. And from that, you create a media value because that media value it's created because somebody else is actually paying for that time and there is an average price for it. So if you take the average price, you give the nonprofit a value that they actually are gonna be getting in the millions of dollars usually. There are times when um, the Viacom, the big, powerful, rich company, needs money to produce something because most of the people that work in the production team are not staff. So actually we have to go out and hire and source these people out of the company. So then we ask the nonprofit and say, can you cover that out-of-pocket expense? But you're getting these millions of dollars worth of not only media time, but also the human time from everyone who's working on the campaign that actually works for Viacom. So we come into that. Um, then after that, um, the easy part comes. The campaign is launched. <laughs> and it's usually very successful. <laughs> it has gone through this whole process, the whole, this whole vetting process. Um, if it is a, like a, a long, uh, we, we actually go to the next uh, step, which would be number five. Um, number five is we, as a media company, um, the, the, the signal is carried by cable operators. And the cable operators have their own advertising time that belongs to them. I don't know if you've ever been watching HBO, and all of a sudden you see the local attorney that it's around the corner from your house, and you wonder, like, how did that attorney get that spot in my HBO primetime series? Well, that's because HBO has, I think, something like uh, three minutes on the hour uh, that they can sell. But oftentimes they don't sell it. So we go and say to them, look, we've got this pro bono campaign. Uh, could you give us airtime from your airtime for these particular demographics? And oftentimes they say yes. So we go negotiate that on behalf of the nonprofit. And then the number six is only when it's a, like the soap opera, the 90 episode soap opera. In that case, the soap opera premieres on MTV. After it premieres on MTV, MTV goes out and sells it to other channels in the industry trade shows. And you have the Channel 3 in Guatemala that buys it, or Channel 1 in Russia, and it gets dubbed in Russian, or wherever. Somebody likes it, they'll sell it. So the nonprofit will get a residual out of the sales of that, of that particular production. So this is the business model that we created in the company. Uh, and we've been actually uh, promoting it with all the other media companies so that they get on the ball with this. Um, I think with this, it gives you a good background of what a CSR campaign is, 
how it comes to the table, how it gets received, and how it goes out to the audiences. Um, and again, uh, my colleagues in the panels are going to tell you their arm and leg of each one of these, of, of how these campaigns are made and become very successful. And then the question would be, after we are finished presenting to you, the question is, how do we get religious literacy as one of the topics for the social responsibility topics in all of the media companies, which I think it's the next frontier. So. I am um, work for a media organization, and I have no PowerPoint and no clips whatsoever. I only have the sheer power of my personal storytelling to drive you on this. And I've been told I have five minutes. So um, I'm going to step back a little bit. Actually, it's going to seem a little disjointed, because I feel like to get to where Mario asked me to go, I have to give a little background in terms of what, what GLAD is and how we work and how we got to where we are. And I will start with an anecdote that is breaking that happened this morning. And I've a little bit been multitasking in the back row back there. Um, there's a film called Rafiki uh, that was made in Kenya uh, that was banned by the Kenyan government. This is a very good film. It has played at Cannes. It played at the Toronto Film Festival. My colleague saw it, was so impressed yesterday as I landed and got to the hotel here, I was on a phone call with one of the producers say, what can we do? Because it's been banned means that the film commission in Kenya cannot consider it to submit to the Oscars. And it has a potential to be submitted to the Oscars. The filmmaker, the director, whose name I wrote down to make, to make sure I can uh, give her credit, um, uh, Winari Kuyu's uh, film, um, had LGBTQ characters. Kenya is one of those countries where being LGBTQ is illegal. Um, and so her depiction in this film makes the film itself illegal now to be played. She sued. This morning she won, which means this film can play for seven consecutive days, making it eligible for Oscars consideration, of which the deadline is October 2nd. <laughs> which is how many days from now? Seven. Right? So, is there the potential? Yes. Now, I'd love to take credit to say that we did this, but we didn't. We, we, we got in on the tail end of this. But the other thing that's important that's to think about is that how do we think about the films and the stories that get told and how do they get in front of an audience that is going to be helpful? Not just for people in Kenya to understand who their friends and neighbors are and perhaps a law that criminalizes them is bad, but also for the rest of us that don't know things about criminalization, understanding what is happening um, in other countries. How do we have the Oscars, which gets considered the best of the best, to hold up diverse stories like this. Last year's film was something similar, A Fantastic Woman from Chile, um, a transgender story that does not end with the transgender person dying, which is the common trope that always exists. And so that's my step back in terms of where GLAD came from. GLAD started in 1985 as a protest movement. It happened in New York City specifically protesting the coverage of people living with HIV and AIDS. And at that time, not much was known about it. In 1985, the New York Post did horrible, horrible defamatory coverage. And uh, this group of people began protesting outside. Um, and the Post, frankly, has not gotten better since then. Um, <laughs> and 
And at the same time, there was a group in Hollywood that was working on inclusion and representation. But recognizing that GLAD's always been this watchdog, our original acronym of GLAD was the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. We can set aside the gay and lesbian part, which is one reason why we stopped using that acronym, because our work is much broader than just gay and lesbian people, but also the Against Defamation. This was us waiting around for something bad to happen and then swooping in and being those angry, humorless homosexuals to wave our fingers at them <laughs> and say, no, 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 no. I once went to a um, Comedy Central taping, and you know they have those warm-up comedians to fire up the crowd. He's like, oh, you're all from GLAD. Do you all love the show? And we all just stared back at him silently. He's like, oh, you're holding judgment. I'm like, yeah, we are. Um, <laughs> But we realize what we can't do is just complain or be angry about what's bad. We have to start to point the way at how we do it well. And this is where the training part comes in. In order to tell people what is wrong, we have to create a guide that says what is right and what is wrong so we can hold them up to that. So to that end, what we've created now um, is several versions of something called the Media Reference Guide. It's a style guide, and it's got terms and definitions, and this word is preferred, this word is problematic, this word is a slur, don't ever use this word over here. And that's been what is, um, we try to influence what happens in newsrooms, but it's also what influences standards and practices um, across across media industries. And then, a lot of the training and education we do for media professionals particularly is walking people through that, right? Um, because people don't know what word is preferred, what word happens to be offensive, what storylines are tired and old and offensive. And so what we do is expand that out to sort of help people figure out what are the best practices, what are the, the pitfalls to avoid. That's the don't do this or we'll get mad at you. Pitfalls to avoid. Um, and figure out how to do that, not just for LGBTQ people, but also how do we go more in depth? How do you report on the bisexual community, a community of which 27% of people are only, only 27% of that population is out to their friends and family? How do we do that for transgender people, of whom 16% of Americans say they know someone who is transgender, as opposed to the 90% of Americans that say they know someone who is gay or lesbian? Will and Grace did a great job, but a lot of Americans think that we all look and act like Jack on Will and Grace, right? And many people have credited that for what brought marriage equality, and Joe Biden is credited that way. And that's great, it's a representation of gay white men, and it did a great job of solving the problems that can come for gay white men. The problem is the LGBTQ community is much bigger and broader than that. And so we also have to put out reports um, we have to give a roadmap for where we are and where we're going. And our entertainment team does our in-house research that does this. It's the Where We Are on TV report that comes out in the fall, the Studio Responsibility Index uh, that comes out uh, after the first of the year. My, my entertainment colleagues sit and watch movies all day long with an Excel spreadsheet. Um, and, and, and we've done a, a couple Spanish language television reports as well, which tellingly have the, there have been two editions. One was called Nearly Invisible. The second one was called Still Invisible. <laughs> and they could give long descriptions of the plot lines in these novellas because there were so few characters that they could provide immense detail. And we also want to make sure that people understood that we do not want good representations of LGBTQ people. They don't have to be good people. They should be fair, accurate, and inclusive. That's the way we talk about it. We want to be villains. We want to be multi-textured villains. We just don't want the bad parts of us to be because of our sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, we've even in the Studio Responsibility Index created something called the Vito Russo Test, named after one of GLAD's founders. If you're familiar with the Bechdel test, it's based on the same sort of premise, in that a film must have an identifiable LGBTQ character. It has to be identifiable on screen. That character must be identified by more than just their sexual orientation or their gender identity, and the character must matter to the plot. If you took out the character, would that alter what happened? 
That's the way that we focus on culture and media rather than law and policy, because we know there's a relationship between those two things, is that, um, is that we need culture change enough to create a legal change, and then we need culture change enough to accept the legal change that we just adopted. And so that's how GLAD also uses our tool, um, uses the media as a tool for advocacy. In my role the, at the GLAD Media Institute, my work is to train everyday activists in how media works. GLAD itself is not an expert in things outside of media. If someone wants to talk about queer Muslim representation, I'm not the right person to talk about that. But I know who is. In fact, when I, when I was hired at GLAD, um, I, 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 I confessed to them up front, my first job at GLAD was the director of religion, faith, and values. And I, I went to seminary. I'm a deacon in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And when I interviewed, I confessed this. I don't have a degree in journalism or media or communications, those things that I thought was needed. Um, my first experience with media was because I run an LGBTQ church camp for teenagers. And that was a part of a documentary. I was the subject of a documentary, that whole conversation about the people that are the subjects. Um, and how do we run a camp with people shoving cameras in your faces all the time? And then later on a television show of Our America with Lisa Ling that showed our camp, but showed in the context of ex-gay programs, conversion therapy, which is actually how I got the job at GLAD. GLAD did not like there was a whole show dedicated to conversion therapy, despite our camp being something else, something more affirming. And so sharing that up front, um, and, so can, and, and when I confessed this, that like, I don't have this background, I don't know this, I was told, oh, that part's easy, we can teach you that. What you have is a Rolodex of religious LGBTQ and allied people, and those are the people that we're going to want to reach out to, that we're want, going to want to place the media, that we're going to want to help to shape that culture. And that's how we shift into the campaigns work that we do, doing things like Spirit Day, or even an award season for your consideration. How do we make sure that the representation that's part of the best of the best is inclusive? And there's been conversations about that in relates to race and gender, and we want sexual orientation and gender identity to be a part of that as well. And we use Spirit Day as one of those campaigns where we go to companies like Viacom and say, we want people to go purple on the third Thursday in October in support of LGBTQ youth and against bullying. We want students to do it. We want teachers to do it. We want their celebrities that they see and follow every day to do it. We want their morning shows to do it. Um, and companies like Viacom and, and many, many others have been very helpful in terms of, okay, we can support this. We can have our employees participate. We can have our talent participate. And we can tap into that and create that mutual relationship so that we can lift up one another in a way that can create that cultural change and acceptance for the LGBTQ community. Thank you. Colleagues, it's a hard time to speak about what I've been asked to speak about, uh, second to last speaker, but I'm going to do my best. But just to share, for me, this is a magical moment. Because Mario, my colleague, who through that campaign process you spoke about, um, spoke about this vision that he had about um, faith and, and bringing it into the narrative of media. And to be here in the Harvard Divinity School, where I went to another school like 30 years ago and to be back here is just an incredible moment. And I've also been inspired to know what I want to do after I leave UNICEF by listening to Abigail for her saying that she became a filmmaker. I was um, chief of uh, 
communication for development in Ethiopia for seven years. I'm a member of the Rastafarian faith, and I was there seven years. And when I was leaving, after having had the power of media using as a tool for UNICEF's work, <clears throat> I realized I was leaving without the story that I wanted to tell about the Rastafarians in Shashamani. And Abigail has given me a vision of what I will do in my retirement. <laughs> I, have two, I have two hard drives of raw footage that I'm sitting on, and my hands are itching. Um, how do I turn this on? <laughs> and I wanted to mention that we, uh, another reason why we're here is that um, we have initiated a new initiative in, in, uh, through the Communication for Development section on faith for social and behavior change. It's the first time when you talk about that there's not a lot of discussion in media about religion, well, join the UN and see that religion is not something you speak about, even when it's about social and behavior change, except if it's about messaging. If it's about messaging, here's the message and deliver it, that's done. About religious literacy and real engagement, that needs to be done. So, uh, I just wanted to, to um, then explain to you um, the brief I was given. So, how the need of a new um, CSR communication campaign starts, the steps that we follow, the importance of partnerships that we develop with media, and how UNICEF measures success, um, success <clears throat> measurement and monitoring. That's a tough brief to give at this time in five minutes. I, I, I'm, I'm very serious, but um, I want to explain that what Mario wrote or whoever wrote in terms of the introduction of this panel um, is really what C4D is about, or Communication for Development. I think we're the only organization, or one of the few, that has a communication division that's separate from a communication for development uh, section. And I sit in that part that does the second part. The, um, that introduction to this panel said, the goal is two-tiered. The first is to simply create awareness and intent, which is what a campaign in my mind does, or what our colleagues, very important, critical work. You till the ground. But in my section, what we do, in terms of trying to reach the gold standard, it's behavior change, and it takes a long-term investment and the ongoing forms of quantifiable measurement. And that's what makes the difference between campaign, for, in my interpretation, and behavior um, for social and behavior change, communication for social and behavior change. So I won't, I won't read the definition, you can have the slides, I'm assuming they'll be distributed. But I just wanted to explain the, the back end of what happens in UNICEF. So we have programs on protection, nutrition, health, water and sanitation, and this person with their head spinning around is myself and my colleagues, <laughs> who are under a lot of demand by different programs that need social and behavior change to achieve the results for children. So that's where it begins. It begins with a list of demands of what the program people who are trying to do services for children, et cetera, are going to make a difference. Then what we do is try and say, well, what are the behavioral parts of that? You know, some things are supply. 
like in Ebola, they had all the health centers and all the training of the people and all the medical supplies, but Ebola transmission continued because of culture. And that's when they scraped up all of the communication for development experts from our offices, and that's when some of these um, complex issues on culture started to be solved and transmission actually happened. And so it's about digging and finding what are the underlying uh, determinants of, of, of behavior, what is, what is uh, influencing that. So this is where we have a sort of contract with our program people to say, this is what we'll focus on, not everything, not every single behavior that needs to be changed, but the prioritized ones. And then what we have is a planning cycle because it, it's strategic. It's just like you wouldn't get up and plan a program on anything without having a, a strategic plan. So we have a strategic plan which begins with partnership. It begins with finding the people who are going to um, pursue this journey with us. And that's what we call establishment of a coordination mechanism or a reference group. And then uh, we then do the research and analysis and then we, based on um, all of the, the findings, we develop the design, and then it's about the creative um, strategy and content development, and that's perhaps what, what Mario was more speaking about. And this is where we have, in our, in our field, we refer to the turtles and the peacocks. So the turtles are us people who are you know, digging down and doing the research and understanding what behavioral objectives are and going through all this strategic design, and the peacocks are the media people who are zipping around with new ideas of creative uh, ways that everyone can get a buzz and everything going. So somehow the peacocks and the turtles have to work together because that's when the magic happens. And then we do implementation, which is finding local partners to work with and um, mobilizing communities and rolling out uh, outreach parts that uh, Mario referred to. And then the monitoring that is here actually starts from the beginning but it also continues um, throughout. Um, this is just to explain how, when we remember that UNICEF is a huge international organization and we work through governments, right? So it's just not, we don't just do a campaign because we, an NGO thinks about doing it and they do it. For UNICEF, we work with government. And so everything about what is called the campaign or the social and behavior change strategy starts with sitting with the national stakeholders and at first getting them to understand that there is social and behavior change strategy that's needed. So this is an example of when we went to Egypt and they had this big uh, national process going and we were able to advocate and say um, that there needed to be this campaign. So then we have an understanding that it happens at different levels. Um, it's not just about individual behavior change, it's about social change. This is a, um, where in, in Egypt we have multimedia at, in the center, but it's connected to these different things that we have on the ground, and that's why it's related to a, a national program. Uh, one thing that we've learned as UNICEF is that we cannot be the producer. We can't be, you know, there's Bollywood and Hollywood and there can't be Uniwood, you know, and that's what I think we're discovering. And so this is a sort of where we came from in India, an incredible program that had incredible results. There are some results. I won't have time to go through this, but I'm, I'm going to give you the gist of it. But this is where we have to embed it in our programming. So this is what Mario presented. But what we have going on through communication for development is that we have school clubs, we have participatory theater on the ground, we have intergenerational community dialogues, 
we have youth doing participatory research, we have radio listening groups, we have participatory video. So that's the, the wealth that we bring. Those are the platforms that uh, UNICEF is working on. So how do we join the two so that it's deeper, it's, it's more powerful? Um, sugar. Sugar is one of, um, I think, another magic that has happened within UNICEF. It actually happened with the uh, uh, participation of my division uh, before I came. Um, it was a radio program. And then it became a TV program. And this, for me, is a way, getting away from the, uni, uh, the Uniwood model. This is about getting another entity to produce, not UNICEF sitting with every script and everything. It's getting it institutionalized. And there was um, Staying Alive Foundation became the institution that, that took this charge up on HIV AIDS prevention. So um, what started with very deep research and support of, of communication for development, then um, was done in partnership, but we had a little bit more distance. We were more advisory rather than sitting and looking at every script. Um, these are all the different ways um, that it, it um, uh, evolved and all these different formats. This is um, working with celebrities. And then this is how it got connected to some of the programming that UNICEF was doing in schools, discussion programs, um, activism, uh, social media. And you can see when you have the, for yourself the slides, the, the kind of results that were achieved in terms of uh, HIV AIDS testing, which went up after the, the, the program. So I'm given a three minute mark three minutes ago, and we're now <laughs> saying stop. So we won't be able to discuss the, the monitoring and the measurement side. It's, it's really hard to deal with these technical issues, and it's almost like a training of understanding. Mm -hmm. But I, I would like to just end by saying that um, I think social norms, because I heard Abigail, there's just one thing. I mean, most things I was just uh, uh, odd, in awe by what she was saying. But I think one thing I would take her to task on is about um, that it's about changing household by household. And I don't agree with that from my experience in, in, in social and behavior change. Because I'll give you just one story, if I may. In Ethiopia, we worked on female genital cutting. And uh, there was a nurse who went around with us and helped us to show the movies of this horrific um, cutting of a girl to try and influence the community. She was the nurse, so she gave all the medical information why it's uh, damaging to, to girls and at pregnancy there's more risk, et cetera, et cetera. Later on in a conference, she gave, gave a testimonial that despite all of that, she sent her four girl children across the border from Ethiopia so that no one would know and got her girls cut. Wow. All four of them. So it, it, that's when I understood fully in my head what is social norms. It's when things beyond your household are there in customs and in practice and you want the best for your girl children. You want them to be married. 98% of the, the community in her district would only marry a girl if they were cut. She mm. wants the best for her child. So I just wanted to plant that in your head, that this thing is a very complex thing, and it requires you know, social science and anthropology and all the social science to gather that data. And we need to work in partnership with media, because the, the two have to go hand in hand, the peacocks and the turtles. Thank you.
I'd never heard that term before. I'm going to start using it, turtles and peacocks. I guess I'm probably a turtle. Thank you, uh, HDS, and thank you, Mario. It's truly an honor to be here. Uh, the role of celebrity and, and their impact in a CSR campaign. Uh, if you think of uh, the entertainment industry as a wheel, talent is the hub, and the spokes emanate from every, from every direction. Uh, we represent, at our agency, over 700 artists, actors, celebrities, directors, producers, writers, sports uh, players, uh, in every single area of entertainment now. As you know, sports is entertainment as well. Uh, talent has a platform that no one else uh, has, and their reach is unparalleled globally. Nobody like talent to sell something. And nowadays, young talent rules social media with their hundreds of millions of, of viewers and followers and likes and everything else. Uh, so as we migrate more to a digital world, uh, the kings of social media, which is young talent, are, are certainly carrying a huge currency in, 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 in the way of their followers. Um, our job at the agency is to advise talent when they want to use their voice in issues related to social responsibility. And like I said, no one like a celebrity when it comes to attracting attention, for the better or for, for bad. We've seen it with good actions, and we've seen it with terrible actions as well. Uh, we know that politics and religion are very, very personal issues. Those are two things you really don't ask unless they volunteer. And we don't push an agenda. We let our clients come and tell us what they want to do. Some of our clients are involved in HIV causes, others in education, equality. Now it's the Me Too movement, uh, human trafficking, the environment, uh, ALS, Alzheimer's, so many different causes. But they come to us and tell us what they want to be uh, interested in, in, in doing. How does it start? Like I said, the talent decides they want to get involved. Usually, it's our experiences when, 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 when a client, when talent reaches a certain level of popularity, they feel like their voice is worth something. That's when they decide they want to get involved in social responsibility and, and social uh, causes. In order for it to be successful, whatever they're going to get involved with, they have to believe it. Because fans nowadays can smell when you're trying to sell something that's not real. And they know when something is fake, believe me. We sit down with our clients, uh, we suggest, we recommend, depending on what their interests uh, are. And usually it comes from personal connection, personal experience, traveling. A lot of our, our, our American-based clients travel the world and then realize, wow, there's a huge world outside and I want to get involved in making it a better place. And what we do is we connect them with the right partner, in this case, whether it's a Viacom, GLAAD, UNICEF. UNICEF is a huge partner of, of most of our clients. And we help shepherd the project. We don't, got, we don't direct it, we help shepherd with our partners and of course with talent leading the charge because if talent believes it, they're gonna get things done that nobody else can. We've seen examples with Katy Perry and UNICEF globally. Angelina Jolie is basically the spokesperson of the refugee crisis in the world, and she's been to Syria, she's been to Iraq, and she's been to Haiti many times. Uh, Viola Davis uh, is on a, uh, uh, on a crusade to erase childhood hunger uh, in America. Lady Gaga has her foundation, which we helped build, called the Help uh, Born This Way Foundation, and it's to help empower youth, not only in the United States, but globally. Uh, Beyonce is very involved with Black Lives Matter. 
uh, Gloria Stefan, who's another client of ours, uh, because she had an accident that she was almost left paralyzed, she got very involved in the Project to Cure Paralysis, which is a Miami-based organization, but it's national. So basically, how do we uh, become agents of change from the agency level, from, from our partners level? It's making sure that everybody has a seat at the table because not one person can do everything. The actors, musicians, producers, directors, managers, we're all different spokes of the wheel. Like I said, talent is the hub. But we start with the premise that everybody has to be at the table. That way everybody's invested in these things. It's also a big push from our side and, and our partners to uh, diversify and enlighten the gatekeepers, whether it's in Hollywood, in Bollywood, in Nollywood, whatever you want to call it, uh, for more diversity, more inclusion uh, in entertainment and, and, and media. We're seeing that happen, uh, like I said, in the, in the last year with, with equality, with the Me Too movement and everything that's going on. I think this is a catalyst for other things that are, com are going to be uh, coming just behind that, that will certainly help. We talk about religion, we talk about what's going on with, with um, multiculturalism in this country, and we feel like there's a wave now because of what's happened in the last year, year and a half, that things are starting to change slowly at a glacier pace, probably slower than we'd want it, but at least they're starting to change, and that's always positive. So with that, I'll leave you, and I guess Mario will take it away, and we can answer any questions. Thank you. All right. Can you guys hear me? Yes. All right. Um, thank you so much to all of you for sharing uh, those experiences in this huge range, and I'm just going to ask you a really simple question. Um, so given that religious literacy for us is not only about promoting foundational knowledge about world religious traditions, but also an understanding that religions are internally diverse, change over time, are culturally embedded, and are capable of exerting both constructive and destructive cultural and political forces, what would a social what responsibility <laughs> campaign look like? How would we do this sort of work with religious literacy in this particular uh, construction? Well, I would first fill out, um, hello, I would first ask you to fill out the brief. <laughs> um, and after that, um, we would go to the research department. Um, we would then tap into the creative team and come back to you and say, hey, these are the ways that we could do this for the different demographics, like you know, family, Paramount, um, adults, Comedy Central young adults, youth, MTV, and kids and children, Nickelodeon. I, it's uh, doable. Yeah. I think, um, and I, I think there's, a, there's some opportunity here, and, and a lot of that comes out of personal, personal narrative. This is what can address like, that list of things you said that I cannot repeat, but <laughs> that it, it's, it is the fact that all of our experiences with our individual faith or our religion are going to be kind of specific to us, right? Um, and when I do this training for activists of faith, and I, what's funny is I hate the word of faith because that's this generic catch-all sort of thing. What I tell people is you need to be very specific about what your religion is, what your strand of religion is, what you believe and imbue what you say with that language that matches it, right? I'm Lutheran, and there are Lutheran words that make sense in a certain way to 
Lutherans that they wouldn't make to others, similar with Catholics. And this has happened in the public. Now, it's been on the negative side, but the, the ones that I've noticed have been um, two big celebrity figures, Anne Hathaway and Ariana Grande, are two people that have very publicly left their Catholic faith specifically because of the way their gay brothers were treated. Both of them have a gay brother. Both of them saw like what a priest said or what happened and made sort of a public departure. That creates a narrative, right? It also claimed for them, um, for both of those two women, this is the faith that I was brought in, up in, this is a part of my identity, and this is why I can't be a part of it anymore. Um, and at least for, I believe for Anne Hathaway, like moving from that into a different denomination, right? Being Episcopal. Um, and I, I feel like, especially with, with that narrative, that's kind of what's existed um, for a long time, what someone used to be. And I feel like, um, it's possible for some of the reasons we talked about earlier with Muslim or perhaps with Jewish um, celebrities, there's, there, there may be different ways and forms and opportunities that present themselves in a different way for them to talk about it. Um, but the one that I've sort of paid attention to has been this very personal narrative of, I grew up with this, this is part of my identity, and then this happened, that's why I'm not a part of it anymore, which is a personal narrative that is really explanatory about what you believe and incredibly religiously literate as you talk about it. So as I'm thinking, maybe three points of um, concrete things that we would want to be thinking about. One is, um, I think it was similar to what you were speaking about um, in terms of having the do's and the don'ts or, or some kind of um, guide. You know, th there needs to be a guide. Um, I know when I was in Ethiopia, they had what was called the, the development Bible. And so it was, it was the, all of the things that the turtles needed to say and, and mm -hmm. get out there. Um, we didn't yet have the peacocks, but um, it was about trying to work with religious uh, organizations to understand what were the needs of children. And so there needs to be a guide for that. But I think what we need to do is evolve from the development Bible, which is very focused on messaging, to um, dialogue uh, guide. You know, what are the questions you should be asking that go with maybe a verse that's just about raising awareness? Um, so that's one thing. I think we need some kind of, 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 of documents that everyone has a common narrative and, and can kind of push on, on that. I think secondly, um, from speaking from UNICEF, which is a big organization, our, our role is convening. We need to convene the right people in the room. We need to get the media people and the religious people together um, so that there is a kind of compact for what we will do together, you know, on this, um, and get people excited and motivated so that it's not just a, a one company and a one UNICEF department. It's really, it's a discussion on moving the, the, the bar. And, and thirdly, I think that it's about recognizing that media, uh, as I think someone else has said, sorry, religious organizations have their own media. And they can often do more damage than good. So religious organizations also need religious literacy, not just us about how to work with religion. Mm -hmm. So I think those are three key things that would need to be done. I think from, from our side, um, it's, it's uh, education. Uh, and it's educating our clients, talent, educating the, the gatekeepers, the producers, uh, the showrunners, the script writers. Uh, I think Dr. Hussein, for example, is doing a great job of, of enlightening people as to what Islam represents. And at the end of the day, uh, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, we're all sons of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham. We all, you know, we are children of, of uh, we believe in monotheism. And, you know, uh, 
Moses is Moses for us, Musa for the Muslims, and Suleiman is Solomon for us. It's the same thing. But it's a process of education. And I, I've noticed that when you sit down with talent, you don't beat them up over the head and you just kind of guide them and, 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 and kind of enlighten them and, and help them out. Uh, you have much better results than when you whack them over the head with something. I, yeah, that's, that's one of the things. And this is a little related to, to what you said as well. The difficulty, I think, is I, I love that personal... Um, I love the personal narrative, but I love when stuff is incorporated. The things that make really interesting plot points or the, what makes it is not doing the right thing, not being the perfect example of someone, someone who is struggling and questioning. And I think internal to the religion, we've got particular gatekeepers that do not want to show people struggling with their religion. We don't want people to be making bad choices because that reflects badly um, on, on our religion. Um, I love it. And I think that there's a number of people that do, but I also think that we've kind of created a narrative within our culture that makes that really, really difficult to do. And that's the challenge I think that we have of how do we do that, knowing that if we do it, there is going to be a particular backlash. There have been some short-lived TV shows that have examined religious themes because the way they portrayed them were seen as offensive, as you know, we started that data with today um, as well. And um, the Book of Daniel, I remember that at all? Like it was one of, it, you know, it was a priest who had all sorts of messed up family. Messed up people are more fun to watch than boring folks, right? And that's, the, it makes good TV, but also it's gonna create a backlash. And I think that's gonna be one of the inherent challenges we're gonna have. And at the same time, so that was a, you know, a one-season show, but then Homeland's been running for, what, 10 years? Yep. Eight, and yeah. Forever. Forever. The show GCB, um, if you remember that. Yes, that one I love. GCB uh, stands for Good Christian Bitches. What? Wow. It has Christian Half a season. <laughs> um, but could you guys speak more to the sort of, Rossi mentioned, gatekeepers who are promoting particular stories or squashing others? What other sort of obstacles or challenges would you expect any of us to encounter if we're trying to push religious literacy as corporate social responsibility. What, who's gonna get in the way of the turtles as we sort of climb over these obstacles? I think that um, going back to what Bruno said, it's education. Um, when I first told my boss, sitting in the middle of the room, that I wanted to do religious literacy at Nickelodeon, his look was like, religion? What are you talking about? I think it's all about education, that what is it that you're really trying to ed uh, educate the, the mass you know, viewer? And it's, I think the word religion is very tricky just by itself. Um, and it's scary to most everyone. So I think it's, maybe if we can find another term, would mm -hmm. <laughs> be really great. <laughs> um, because I think that is the, what, the biggest blocker, that people automatically build a wall. And because it's, Everyone, it's afraid to talk about politics mm -hmm. or religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. Can we get the mic he, He's going to defend himself. <laughs> I mean, I was like, there's no way in hell we're ever going to do that. <laughs> and now here I am. Um, but I, I think what you're all, you're all saying the same thing, but I think bring it back to like, what's your message? This is, you're essentially marketing something. You're marketing a campaign. So that list you gave was, I mean, no one can even remember the question. It was huge. So look at the question, prioritize what's most important. Where can you win? Where can you make the most impact? Because that's your sort of first step in. Achieve that goal. Be very clear. Be very creative. Um, 
you know, tick, 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 then move on to the next thing. I think that will get you what you want. You're never going to satisfy everyone, especially at the first go. So decide what you can do, where you can win, and move from there. We've got uh, Lucia and then Judy both have questions. Um, thank you. Uh, my name is Lucia Vicencia. I'm a recent graduate of the Divinity School. Um, first of all, thank you so much for being here and for doing this. It's amazing um, to be able to be in conversation with your minds who are like not only thinkers but also activists. You are the ones who have hands on. Um, so as someone who's been trained by the RLP, um, and want to think how the media process goes through. What I see and what I'm thinking is that the first thing that goes with religious literacy is the fact that religion is not, does not stand alone. So when we we're talking about religion, we're also talking about politics, we're also talking about sexuality, we're also talking about race. And I think that um, that's the, per the first step of education, educating people to believe that religion does not stand alone, but it, it comes with all these backgrounds. And in the fact of including artists, um, or with this Ariana Grande or um, Anne Hathaway leaving Catholicism, there are, um, there are people that are Catholics and that are, are still um, gay. There are people that are Catholics and they match their faith, but do hold different beliefs because religions are internally diverse. And actually holding um, that public conversation is in fact doing religious literacy. I, I would like to stand corrected if I'm saying something that is wrong. And like really what I would like to learn with you, and I think that that's the problem that you're facing, is how do you engage more people with that learning um, thing? Uh, first of all, thank you for your really excellent comments. When I think about religious literacy, and I will own the fact that I am the author of that wretched list. <laughs> but that list is, is not what I would want to suggest for any kind of media campaign. That's, that list is a, is a set of tools for us who are thinking about, like, what kind of questions do we need to ask? So I would say for me, when I think about like what's the message, and Mark, I'm so glad you kind of raised that question. For me, it's more what are the consequences when we don't know religion? Like mm -hmm. how do this, how do we tell stories about the the significant consequences of what we would call religious illiteracy yield? Mm -hmm. And that I think is an entry point because then we become then it ma it matters. It's like this not an abstract idea. It has consequences. So I don't mean to imply we have to come at it negatively, although that might be at one dimension, but, it, but that's what I, so for me it's more, why should we care? I'm, that seems to be the question. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm glad you brought up your question too, and I, I, I don't want to dominate the, the, the panel, but I, do, I think it's, it's true. People of faith, and I'm using that generic term, are very LGBTQ accepting and inclusive. It is often the leadership or a structure that often creates those barriers. So I, I didn't put this in my speech, but one of the early studies that I helped to commission when I was at GLAD was looking at news, mainstream news media, and what religious people get interviewed to talk about LGBTQ issues. Three out of four of them come from traditions that are either have policies or culture that are anti-LGBTQ. So it's, it's a lot of Catholic and evangelical. The, the paradox is that Catholic people are one of the most accepting Christian denominations. But people, but in the news, you don't interview the Catholic person. Mm -hmm. 
You interview the archbishop. You interview the cardinal. You interview the leader whose job and title it is to kind of pull that party line, which is very different than what I call the everyday pew-sitting person. Um, I think with, with fiction, with television and film, there's an opportunity to tell and do some of those more nuanced stories. It also means there has to be this religious literacy education on the place of the producers and the directors to know how to get past that and not just play into the stereotype that they're seeing. Because, again, there's a group of people that are trying to reinforce that same stereotype. And I think that, um, and that, that's some of the internal struggle that's always going to happen intra denominationally, intra-religiously, um, and then how does that, what does that look like to the outside? And I think the LGBTQ issue shows that sort of stark contrast of leadership being in one place and real people being somewhere else. Can I just, um, I think I would be remiss coming here representing UNICEF without bringing a child lens or, or issues on children into this. and. I'm coming from, I went to Boston University um, and my bachelor's is in early childhood development. And one thing we know is that identity formation is really early. And that's like from three and four. So to me, I think we have to think of a, a age disaggregated strategy when we're talking about this religious literacy thing. I mean, you kind of have it in that you started on education, right? But I think it's beyond curriculum because in early childhood, you're not in school even if not in preschool, because it starts from seeing your daddy and what, what he does and understanding religion through that and what the mom does. So I just think that you know, it needs to be nuanced if we're thinking about this really deeply, because then everything is remedial. <laughs> you know, so if we start from early childhood, then think of maybe the education strategy being that middle band, and then the media sort of taking it into the, the public space for the, the adults and the wider community. So I just wanted to sow that seed. Judy's been very good. Oh, okay. Um, Bruno, I think my question is for you. And I'm reflecting back on Abigail's incredible story of the sort of one-on-one -on -one engagement with the gentleman from Operation Rescue. I don't remember his name. Um, that it was a, sort of one-on-one, -on -one, but then fundamentally this huge ripple of a change of consciousness. And I'm thinking about celebrities, I'm thinking about talent, I'm thinking about movie stars, who, many of whom really stand for, you know, very principles of diversity and toleration, and yet are, you know, participating in this industry where they are part of films that, that, that you know, promote bigotry in one way or another, funding films, et cetera. And so, I, I just wonder if you could reflect on her story in the context of the conflict of values that, that mm -hmm. exist within the talent of, of movie stars. That's a very good question. Um, if, if you sit down with, with, with talent, especially the big celebrities one-on-one, -on -one, they're fairly spiritual people. You think about George Clooney, Angelina Jolie, and, and all the stuff they do, uh, and Brad Pitt, still spends time in New Orleans helping rebuild New Orleans. George Clooney has donated millions of dollars to Darfur and Southern Sudan, and of course Angelina Jolie, we talked about the refugee uh, crisis. Um, it's, it's when, when it, 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 they become lightning rods and they're forced into a corner uh, and, and they have to kind of shy away from, from, from what they do uh, at the private level. Privately, they're very involved. Uh, they, they donate 
hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. I was just thinking as, as Corita was talking, last year when Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, uh, every single Puerto Rican uh, music artist, and, and there's so many around the world now, whether it's Daddy Yankee or Luis Fonsi or Ricky Martin, they donated hundreds of millions of dollars quietly to help uh, the island get back on its feet. Not even rebuild, because that's gonna take billions of dollars, but just get back on its feet. But nobody really covered that, except the bad news when you know half a million bottles of water were left on the runway or whatever it is. That's when, of course, you know, we, we like to say the media is at fault for everything. But I, I think uh, in, in, in answer to your question is, when they're doing stuff on their own privately, they're a lot more generous than we give them credit for, a lot more. Uh, I think the change in Hollywood has to come from within. Uh, and we're starting to see that with what, what happened to Harvey Weinstein and, and everybody else, Les Moonves, and you know, Lorraine can tell you better than I can every week who gets knocked down, whether it's Jeff Fager or whoever, whoever, whoever. I think that's gonna happen. It's, 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 it's just um, a matter of time. Uh, at the end of the day, Hollywood's about the money. Uh, when it comes to religion, uh, the minute they see money, they're gonna go after it. We're starting to see with the Middle East now. A couple months ago, Mohammed bin Salman was in LA, who is the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. So now suddenly Hollywood's saying, well, maybe we shouldn't be making Muslims into bad people when Mohammed bin Salman's gonna invest $100 billion in Hollywood. And he's opening the country to movie theaters and concerts and everything else. So at the end of the day, it's green. Uh, green runs this world. By green, I mean money, not the environment, unfortunately. <laughs> so it will come, like I said, it's too slow for my taste, but it's starting to move along at a snail's pace. But it's happening. Hmm? I just, I wanted to respond to you, Carida, because I think what you said was 100% correct. And it's about messaging and nuance. And I think, you know, to your point, being very literal to a three-year-old about religion you know, it's, it's just not relevant, makes no sense, or to a six-year-old, probably to a 10-year-old, or even to a 17-year-old. However, if you talk about love and acceptance and family and community, those are themes which, are, I mean, at the core of, I mean, most, I, I don't really know, but I would assume religion, most religions. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of something which you can build different stories for different people. Absolutely. That, that, that's where you focus, as opposed to the particular tenets of Absolutely. religiosity. I, I want to ask a question, kind of changing the subject a little bit. When you talk about corporate responsibility campaigns, there's a pretty broad range of subjects and topics. You know, I, I get it. You can deal with a lot of things. But you probably don't deal with maybe what's the closest thing to my religion, which is a kind of Marxism. The structural inequality and the incredible, you know, broadening of inequality that is happening in our country and around the world is responsible for a huge amount of human misery. And that strikes me as something, like you said, it's about the money. Mm -hmm. That's something, I, I think it's great what you guys do, but I think we also understand what can't be done in this kind of context. So where do we find the platform to talk about the elephant in the room, the biggest problem of all, which is inequality. Can I just say that I, I, I want to go back to the difference between what I call, say, campaign 
And this is great. We need campaigns for raising awareness and intent and doing all of these good things. But those are the root underlying deep causes, and that's not going to happen through a campaign. So I think for me, it's about mobilizing the young people in faith is a, is a big place to start, to have these dialogues that are not about religion. You know, it's about you know, what's making the world in unequal. You know, and where is inequality? And, and engaging in intergenerational dialogue about that and holding leaders accountable for the things that they said they would do to create more equality. And I, I would like to add that there are many campaigns right now, um, and some of them in Viacom, that are addressing uh, equity and equality both. But as Carita says, these campaigns are creating awareness they're changing behavioral intent, and after the years, they may change behavior, but um, they're just mass communication campaigns uh, that are often tied to, like the let's say, the grassroots uh, effort. That, like for example, what Carida showed on UNICEF, that is actually making that e equity change. Um, but in this case, it's just to kind of bring the topic to everyone so that when they get there, uh, the minds have already been opened up. And I think that's the synergy between the two. So I approach this as an activist too, and glad, I said Gladstar is a protest movement. And we can sometimes be very cozy with the content creators, knowing, and part of what we say is, you can either prevent doing the bad thing with us up front, or we can help to lead the charge against the problems that exist down the road later. Um, or sometimes, and, and now with, the, with social media and the digital, um, if there is something that's anti-LGBT that shows up in, say, a television show, sometimes GLAD isn't the one that has to respond to it. Back in 85 or the 90s or something, you know, we can fax out a press release three days later, and that's timely. Now, the, we say the internet took care of it for us, right? Everyone knows this was awful, they got the message. What we often do is say, do you want to deal with us to fix the problem, or do you want to deal with the mobs that just want you all shut down? Um, and, and using that as a point of leverage. And I'm cynical enough to know that it is financially driven, and that we are talking about an industry that wants to make sure that it makes money. And part of the case for us is to help them to understand uh, that supporting, in our case, LGBTQ acceptance is a good, wise business decision. And sometimes we need them very specifically to speak out on something spe specifically. Campaigns are specific, and they're about, you know, do one action. And while you're doing that one action, you continue to name and describe a worldview of what the world can and should be like. And this one action doesn't get us there, but it keeps planting that seed about, and this is where my religion stuff comes in, right? What's the end product? What's the um, kingdom of heaven kind of thing look like? Um, and here's the step that gets us along the way to that. Um, and if a corporation can be helpful to me in doing that, if a television show or a commercial can be helpful in doing that, it's a great tool for me as an advocate. I want to keep that relationship professional, but also a little separate, because sometimes that's not going to be the right tool to use. And sometimes I'm going to need to go around um, or go through um, a business to do that. And GLAD's done that too. You know, here's a law that's passing in a state. We need you to speak out about this. 
if you're not going to, we're probably going to start naming and shaming that we asked you to speak out on this and you didn't. Um, and that can be surprisingly effective. And, and often, like, once one company does, everyone else wants to follow, right? No one wants to be the first. But once that happens, it's kind of like dominoes falling in terms of like, okay, we knew it was right, but we're all scared of what the consequences were going to be and helping to sort of hold the hand through that process. I think just to uh, echo what, what Karita said, um, the, the youth are really going to change this world. It doesn't, it sounds so utopia, but we've seen it with the MDS, the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas kids. That was a grassroots organization started by high school kids the day after the mass shootings. They didn't hire anybody from Hollywood or anybody to come in and do anything. It was the kids. And the effect they're having, not only in Florida, but nationally with the NRA afraid, you know, voter registration among young kids in Florida is through the roof. That's, I think, where the future is going to come. I hate to say it, but I think we have screwed up. We had a chance years ago, and we've messed it up. It's up to these kids who are going to turn 18 or turning 18 now. I think that's the future to hopefully go back to that equality that you talk about. I, I'm not American. I, I came here 25 years ago when I arrived in the United States. It was the only country in the world, apart from you know, maybe Western Germany and England, where there was a, a, a upper class, very, very big middle class, and, and lower class, of course. Now that it's, it, and, and the rest of the world was always upper class and huge lower class, now the United States is becoming that. It's becoming that kind of third world country that it was never meant to be that. And, and I'm talking about 25 years ago. So I, I'm hoping, and I, I, I really have faith that these kids are actually going to change the world. And like I said, it may sound too utopia, but I really have faith in them because they've done so much in six months. Sure, I wanted to thank you all for the, uh, the presentation, just to, to the point that Bruno and, and, and Rashi were making in terms of the content and, and the talent working with that. I, I didn't tell the story of, the story of God with Morgan Freeman comes out of Mr. Freeman, who's not particularly religious, like he's talked about this on the show. It's he and Laurie McCreary, his, his producing partner on Revelations Entertainment, are in Turkey. Uh, I think they were shooting on like one of the Batman films or something, you know. Um, and he's got a day off and he goes to uh, Hagia Sophia and gets a tour. And, you know, the guide sort of tells him the history of, you know, this was a Byzantine church. And then after the, the conquest, it became a, a mosque. And he points to the ceiling and, the, and there's the mosaics of Jesus and Mary. He says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you, you said that this was a, a mosque. Yes, well, why are Jesus and Mary there? And the tour guide just says, well, Mr. Freeman, Jesus and Mary are important for Muslims. And he just paused and said, and this is Diane's point of solution, I did not know that. And then he thought, if I don't know that, if that's as basic as, you know, mm -hmm. Muslims uh, consider Jesus and Mary to be important, maybe I should do something about religion. And then being Morgan Freeman is able to do this kind of thing. So the first season, I think, cost like $8 million, which is a lot of money, except that, you know, you're getting Morgan Freeman for essentially like three movies for $8 million. And that's a steal by, by anyone's sort of stretch. And, and it goes back to the point of it's the money. I mean, why is National Geographic renewing for third season? Because it's making money. Uh, for them, but it's, it's the talent that, that can, you know, really drive things in sort of interesting ways. When you tell talent that Jesus for the Muslims is Isa, and you, his father Joseph is Yusuf, his mother is Maryam, and the archangel Jibril, then they realize, wait a second, we're cousins. Why, why are we arguing? Why are we fighting? We're, the three of us are cousins. We're close cousins, not even distant cousins. So it's, once again, education without beating them up over the head with it. Thank you. Thank you. I think Diane's going to offer some closing remarks, unless you want to give one more question. Well, I, the, the, okay. the 
closing remarks are simply actually closing appreciations. Um, before we move into that, can we just give this remarkable panel? So it's been a long and full day, and we could consistently cut your breaks in half. Um, but uh, first, I just want to thank all of you for being with us and all of the presenters. Really remarkable set of conversations. Um, we have so much to think about and uh, continue to process together and look forward to ongoing conversations with all of you. I want to thank you all for, for all that you've offered to us. We, we, uh, we, we're, we're incredibly grateful. We have to give a serious <laughs> round of applause to Bridget. Please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I get the good fortune of uh, working with Bridget very much. She's my, she's my advisee. She's silly in taking about every class I teach and every class I think I might want to teach. And so thank you, Bridget, for everything. And, and then finally, I, we, I cannot emphasize this enough. Um, Sarah Ben Levy Brightman has spent hours and hours and hours on this, uh, creating this uh, experience for all of us. Um, and I, she has talked with all the presenters in depth. She did, and she, and, and I'll talk about Lauren in a moment, but along with, with Lauren, has done massive research and really, the, together, Lauren and Sarah Ben really conceived of and really helped shape the richness of these panels. And I think it might be our most successful one uh, of all four. And so, uh, to Sarah Ben, thank you for your leadership on this. To Lauren. Lauren, I, you are a leader too, and, but Lauren also did this amidst taking on a new full-time job with us as education coordinator. So Lauren not only did massive work on this project itself, but has also helped us launch a whole new branch uh, or enhance a branch of, uh, of our work um, and, and done so with grace and humor and incredible, uh, incredible gifts to us intellectually. So thank you. Thank you, Lauren. And to Steve, um, our ongoing partner, this is, uh, this is our last symposium. Um, and in fact, we got Lauren through Steve, so this is really <laughs> So we, we have a lot to thank you for. But it's just been a really rich experience and pleasure to think with you about these important questions, especially given your groundbreaking work on religious literacy. I mean, Steve was on The Daily Show. That's really cool. Like, I will never be on The Daily Show. <laughs> Um, and then finally, thank you, Mario, again. Uh, this, when Mario jokes about retiring from Viacom and then coming here, he's kind of not joking. And your, your, your energy, your effort, your generosity to help us think about these questions and the work that you've uh, committed to helping us do from here on out is, um, is an incredible gift to us, and we're very grateful. So thank you. Finally, in absentia, Bruce, I hope if you watch the 24 hours of this video, <laughs> you will see this. But uh, again, Bruce McGever 
is our benefactor for this entire series, um, and he helped. He, without his um, his generosity, none of this would happen. And then we now have a foundation that now Arthur Vining Davis has also helped helped us uh, offer with new grants to continue forward. So so thank you, Bruce McGever, in abstentia. And then finally, uh, thank, thank all of you who, who came uh, to, to be with us and to help us think about these questions um, and to uh, be in conversation with us along the way. Again, I want to just reiterate, at the Religious Literacy Project, we are deeply committed to wanting to enhance the public understanding of religion. And we know deeply, we cannot do this alone. We have things we can offer through the academy, but the, it is the work of the world that, we, that fuels our urgency, the terrible challenges we're facing, the kinds of inequality that you so eloquently raised is exactly what um, we want to do our small part to try to help uh, to mitigate. And so thank you for that comment and thank you all. I hope you stay in touch with us um, and help us do this work better because we really need you. Thank you again, everyone.